0: All right, it's such a privilege to be with you uh, this morning and to take some time to study God's Word. So if you'll uh, take your Bible now and open with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 3. And uh, we are looking at these opening chapters of Luke the the past year or so, and uh, they are uh, really important, uh, but they take work. And so I hope you're ready to work. Uh, with me because we're talking again about Jesus uh, today and of course uh, by Jesus I mean this Jewish man who lived uh, 2,000 years ago and who the Bible says uh, died uh, was buried and uh, was raised on the third day and and we're going to be talking a lot about him actually in the weeks ahead years ahead forever but definitely as we're studying the gospel of Luke we're going to be talking a lot about Jesus over and over and over again, which I know doesn't surprise you because uh, you're at at church and uh, I'm guessing that's even something that you would say that you want to hear about. But even though uh, most Christians, or many Christians, know they're supposed to want to hear a lot about Jesus, they don't always really love uh, hearing so much about him uh, because it doesn't always feel so relevant. Uh, we really like things that feel practical, most of us. And, and talking about Jesus doesn't always feel so practical right away. In fact, obviously, I haven't done a, a survey, but I've, I've found sometimes as a, a preacher that it feels like you get a lot more response to sermons uh, where you talk about doing this or doing that. So uh, like, let's, let's talk about money or let's talk about parenting. People like that. Sometimes more than they do sermons about Jesus, and yet, you know that, it really doesn't make sense. Uh, big picture. because what are we claiming about Jesus? you know? What are we claiming about Jesus? And this is kind of the point of Luke. We're claiming Jesus, this man who lived 2,000 years ago, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Which maybe, again, you're like, well, OK, but how is that exciting? But no. It is exciting because the Old Testament gives us God's plan for solving the problems of the entire universe. Hear that. God's plan for solving the problems of the universe. So we've got problems and we know we have problems in this world. And you go out there and you're hearing all these plans for solving those problems. And people are interested in that. They want To solve the problems of the world and they're trying to sell us their solutions all the time they're diagnosing the problem and they're offering their solution and part of the reason we talk so much about jesus is that the bible the book that we're reading is not just a set of instructions or a philosophy of life or some guidelines for doing some good things and being a good person it is this big long story instead about how God is going to solve the problems of the universe, and the Old Testament gives us the basic plan. So we read the Old Testament, and it lays out, okay, this is what God is going to do, and the New Testament tells us how he did it through Jesus, how Jesus accomplished it. In other words, the New Testament tells us how what happened and what is going to happen with Jesus actually solves the problems of the entire universe. And really, you don't get more relevant than that. How, how God solves the problems of the universe is kind of the most relevant thing there is, which, of course, is why we can't stop talking about Jesus. Because as we preach the gospel, what are we doing? What are we here for? Fundamentally. We're we're looking at the world as it is, and we as Christians, as a church, are making this big, bold, audacious claim that Jesus is the key to God's plan for fixing everything. It all, it literally it all depends on Jesus. And so, of course, we need to know how can we be sure of that, especially since, listen, He got crucified. Because, you know, if you're making a list of superhero qualities, getting crucified is not usually up there as a credential. Which is why Luke's writing, this is part of the purpose of the Gospel of Luke, why it's in the Bible. Because I guarantee you, if we think that's a problem, they thought that was a bigger problem back then. Partly because they had seen people get crucified. And they knew crucifixion meant you lost. And so Luke has to write this gospel for the purpose of making clear what happened with Jesus really did do what God said it would. And we saw he begins making his argument in chapters 1 and 2, which is like an introduction. He lays down his basic thesis, which is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All these things like we just read in Isaiah chapter 32 are fulfilled by Jesus. And beyond that, Luke wants you to know that if you really are paying attention to the Old Testament, you should know that. That's his basic argument, Luke. We know Jesus is the Messiah because the Bible's clear. You remember what Jesus said to his mom? Did you not know? You should have known. How? Because of what the Bible says. And so after telling us what the book is gonna be about in chapters one and two, Luke in chapter three gets started trying to prove his point. He wants to show you how you can be sure that Jesus is the one that was promised. And he starts making his case with John. You see there maybe at the, at the top in bold print, Right over chapter 3, John the Baptist prepares the way. And what I'm, I'm really wanting to understand as we look at these chapters is why Luke starts with John. I think you understand why Luke starts with John, and you're starting to understand Luke, his point. Because this is not random, obviously, how Luke writes this gospel. He is like a literary genius, and so he, he, he didn't have to say anything about John. Actually, he could have started in a number of different ways. But instead, he starts with John. And he's done a lot of work to get our attention on John. If you think about chapters 1 and 2, John is in there all over. And he starts with John for a reason. That's the point. If you think of the Gospel of Luke as a puzzle, with all the stories he writes as puzzle pieces, This piece fits here. There is a reason he starts with John as he makes his case to prove that Jesus really is the Messiah the Old Testament talked about. And to help you understand that reason, maybe you remember we began last week by looking at verses 1 through 6. So this is a a long set of verses, verses 1 to 20, all goes together. But we only got through verses 1 through 6 where Luke is showing us that John is a very very special prophet who was promised by the Old Testament. And he starts, he begins first by giving a little historical context, verses 1 and 2. Israel's in exile. And you need to know that because that's a, a problem for Israel, and it's a problem for the entire world. The Old Testament explains that. It was even there in Isaiah 32 as Isaiah was reading this promise of exile. It's a a problem the Old Testament tells us about, Israel being sent into exile, and it's a problem the Old Testament solves. It shows us how God is going to rescue the nation of Israel from exile, and that rescue starts with a prophet, and Luke draws your attention to that. He gives the Old Testament context for John in verses 3 through 6 by saying, John is in the wilderness around the Jordan, and part of the reason why I had Isaiah read Isaiah 32 is because... the Old Testament talks about the wilderness and what is going to happen in the wilderness as part of God's solution to this problem of Israel being in exile. And so there's a lot of Old Testament background to John the Baptist being in the wilderness around the Jordan. And you can listen to last week's sermon to get it. But in case you don't, Luke actually takes us back to Isaiah the prophet to pinpoint exactly what makes John so important in verses 4 through 6. By showing us this promise about a prophet who would come right before God clearly and obviously steps into the world to provide salvation. And so Luke is saying, verses 1 through 6, I am talking about John because this is what the Old Testament says is going to happen. The Old Testament says there's going to be a very special prophet who is going to come to get God's people ready before the world sees God's salvation. And in verses 7 through 14, Luke is like, John is that prophet. Because look at what happened. Look at what the Old Testament says is going to happen, and look at what happened. He said, therefore, you see that in verse 7, right? He said, therefore, and therefore is an important word. Because uh, really, you, you might say, it's another way of saying because. Because the Old Testament said The prophet who came before the Messiah would do this. John did that. And Luke gives us a glimpse into how. First, he shows us John's message, and then he shows us their response. And it's kind of surprising because John is intense. You see in verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Verse 7, you brood of vipers. Which, of course, is not normally how you would address people who want to be baptized. If you're coming to the baptism class with Isaiah, I doubt he's going to say that uh, to you. Don't worry. Brood of of vipers. Because that is a really intense thing to say, especially if you consider the biblical theological significance. Because a viper is what? It's not so complicated. A viper is a, a snake. And if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, it's a snake, it's a viper that tempted Eve. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning, God talks about how there's going to be this battle throughout history between the descendants of the serpent and the people of God. And the story of Genesis follows those two seeds. And you know who the seed of the woman is supposed to be? It was supposed to be the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites. They're supposed to be the heroes. And yet here, John is talking to Jewish people who are coming out to him, expecting salvation and saying... You know what's happened is that you have lined yourself up with descendants of the serpent battling against God. You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And wrath to come, again, we hear that and we just think of anger that is coming. But in the Old Testament, it is a very specific phrase. It's not just general wrath. It's something that you would call the day of the Lord which is this time in history when God rips open the curtain, you might say, to reveal himself, to judge his enemies and establish his kingdom. And so John is talking to Israel, and he's warning them about God's wrath, calling them to repent. It's it's not just that other people need to repent. He's saying Israel needs to repent, and they need to repent before it's too late. There needs to be action, he says, verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, which is basically what the prophets have been pleading with Israel about for years and years. Isaiah, Jeremiah, I mean, every single prophet in the Old Testament. And so really, it's like John is coming at the end of the line of these great Old Testament prophets, and he's warning Israel that day those prophets talked about is coming. God is stepping into history. He's going to judge his enemies. And so you, now is the time, you must stop making excuses for yourselves. He says, verse 8, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Which of course was the problem the whole problem with israel up to this point is that instead of the privileges god had shown them creating humility it created complacency and so while they were looking for the messiah they're all coming out to john which is great The problem was they were thinking the Messiah was going to come and save them and defeat Rome and establish his kingdom and make all these changes in the world and simply assuming they're going to be part of it without even questioning themselves because, after all, they are literal, physical descendants of Abraham. And so John is warning them that actually it's not that simple. If they're going to participate in what God's doing through the Messiah, they have to truly repent and stop making excuses and actually change And this need for repentance is urgent because, verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Which, again, is something that the prophets warned about. And that's so important because John's not making this up. He's just preaching the Old Testament, basically. This is what the Old Testament said needed to happen before Israel got out of exile. And if it didn't happen, the Old Testament was clear, Israel would experience judgment, which is something Jesus is going to say later in Luke chapter 12 and 13 as well. This is going to come up again in the Gospel of Luke as Luke explains why things happened the way they did. And so later, we're going to see Jesus is talking to the crowds and he says, you better be careful because I can tell you're not understanding what's going on here because what's going on here is that God is acting to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. And so what do you need to do? Jesus says the same, things as, same thing as John. And you, you can read it Luke 12. We'll get to it later. But basically, Jesus says you need to repent before it's too late. In fact, you know what happens is that these Jews come up to Jesus in Luke 13 And they talk about some Galileans who died. And you know what Jesus says? He says, do you think they died because they were worse sinners than you? Because they were from, like, the Jerusalem area, and they looked down on the Galileans as mixing with the Gentiles. And so he says, no, unless you repent, you're going to perish in the same way. You're going to experience the wrath of God. And then he tells them a parable, surprise, surprise, about a tree. And he says, if this tree doesn't bear fruit, I'll give it a little more time but only a little more time because if it doesn't bear fruit soon, then I'm gonna cut it down, just like John is saying at the beginning. And so what is going on here in Luke chapter three is that Luke is setting you up to understand the significance of John by first giving you the historical context. Israel is in exile. If you know the Old Testament, that is a problem not just for Israel, but for the world. And John is significant because the Old Testament says God is going to send a prophet before he delivers them from exile, and the Old Testament says that prophet is going to get the people ready for the coming of the king. And so you look at John and what's happening. That is exactly what's happening, verses 7 through 14. I mean, that's how they were to get ready, through repentance. And he's out there in the wilderness where Isaiah said it was all going to start, confronting the people calling Israel to repent, and look at their response, because what are they doing? It's it's a little surprising, actually, because John is so intense, and he's not holding anything back, and he's not doing any miracles or anything. He's just warning people about judgment, and he's calling them to repent, and you know what happens? It looks like the beginning of a nationwide revival. That's what happens. Luke says, verse 10, and the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer them and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages, which is amazing because people are coming from everywhere to hear John, and he is calling them to repent at like a basic fundamental level. And you know what? They're not making excuses, and they're not running away, and they're not getting angry. Instead, what do they say? They say, what shall we do? And, and you know who's saying this Exactly. Because this is significant as well. Who do you have coming out here to John? Luke says you have crowds, you have tax collectors, you have soldiers. And those would be Jewish soldiers, so like policemen almost. And the point is, you have almost everyone. You have everyday people, you have sinful people, you have powerful people. And they're all just so overwhelmed, and they're asking John what to do, and he's telling them what to do. And many of them seem to be doing it as they're going out and getting baptized. And so, again, I'm just trying to help you see the context because the big moment in this passage is verses 15 to 17. That is like the climax. But Luke is doing a lot of work to get you ready for that climax by showing you why you really need to listen to John. And the reason, again, that you need to listen to John is because he is doing what the Old Testament said the prophet would do before God stepped in to save. And the people seem to be responding the way the Old Testament said they should. I mean, you understand, right? Because Israel repenting is in the Old Testament what happens right before God steps in to deliver them and ultimately solve the problems of the world. That's kind of everywhere. We saw that last week, even back in Deuteronomy. But a classic passage is Joel 2. Uh, In Joel... If you can find it quick enough, Joel, the the prophet, is warning the people about the day of the Lord, the wrath to come, and he calls on Israel to repent. And you know what he says will happen when Israel repents? Joel 2, verse 18, listen to it. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people, The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. In other words, when Israel repents, exile ends, and everything changes. And Luke quotes Isaiah in verses 5 and 6 to give a picture of what's going to happen when he says, Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, which again is what? It's this great big, complete, total reversal of how absolutely everything is right now. And what happens then? End of verse six. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so I'm saying the Bible anticipates that something's gonna happen in history. God Is going to act in history. And how do we know it's happening? He lays out the plan in the Old Testament. And we look there and we see there's supposed to be this special prophet who comes before the Messiah, who gets the people ready for this end times, world-changing work of God. And Luke says, you look at John and that's what happened. That prophet came. John is that prophet. And one way you know that's what's going on is because of how the people responded to John. Look at what Luke says in verse 15. He says, as the people were in expectation. And expectation is a really heavy word. It's a big word. It's an end times kind of word. It means they know something's going on. There's something so significant about John and about his ministry that they're thinking maybe this is the moment they've been waiting for. Maybe this is the moment when God is going to step in. Specifically, Luke says, end of verse 15, they were all questioning in their hearts, all were questioning concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Which is a big question, whether he might be the Christ. Such a big question, because it's another way of asking the same question we were saying earlier, we're asking about Jesus as we read the Gospel of Luke. They are looking at John, and they're asking, is he the Christ? In other words, is John the one? Is John the one who is going to fulfill the plan we read about in the Old Testament? That's what they mean when they ask whether John might be the Christ. That's not a last name, the Christ. That's a title. And that title is stuffed with significance. You can think of it, is he the one God is going to use to solve all our problems? And Luke tells us that John answered them all. That's verses 16 and 17, John's answer, which is what we're looking at today, believe it or not. That was all the introduction. We're zoning in on verses 16 and 17. And what we're going to do today is look at John's answer to the question, is John the Christ? And you remember, this is like a three-week sermon we're doing here, one sermon over three weeks, and so this is almost like point two today. Point number one was the setup, the introduction, verses 1 to 14. By the end of verse 14, it should be clear we really need to listen to John because John is this special prophet who is the Old Testament promised, is supposed to point to the Messiah which is actually super helpful of God. We can thank God that he raised up John because there's a lot of people in the world, and you can imagine them all raising their hand. I want to be the Messiah. I want to be the solution to all your problems. But how do we know who is the Messiah? One way we know is that God promised to send one person to say, no, this one is the Messiah. And the person who does that is John. And so verse 15, the people are asking themselves whether John might be the Messiah, and he answers. And his answer is so important. In fact, what John says here is so important that it actually ends up being referenced all throughout Luke and Acts. What I realized as I studied this passage is that we're going to have to preach Acts. Because this here, it's clearly a sequel. (laughs) Because this here, this what John says here goes all the way throughout Acts and keeps being brought up all the way throughout Acts. It's going to be one of the keys in Luke's mind for being sure that Jesus really is the Messiah. That's why this passage is here at the beginning. You ask Luke, how do I know that Jesus is the Messiah? How do I know what happened is what the Old Testament is talking about? Because it kind of seems confusing to me. Luke's like, well, what did John say? Because John is the one the Old Testament said would come before the Messiah. And so we know what he says is going to be significant. And what does he say? It's here in verses 16 and 17. And again, in terms of how this gospel works, remember he's coming before the Messiah, John, not after the Messiah, but before, even in terms of where this is literally located in the gospel of Luke. It's before Jesus's ministry. And so the way this works, what John says here in the gospel of Luke and Acts is going to be like a clue for us. You understand that, right? John, let me just say that again because I'm not sure. John comes before here, Jesus. And so he's not, hes not. Luke is not talking about John after Jesus until Acts. Here he's before. And so what he says here is a clue. He's not preaching after Jesus died and was raised. He's actually preaching before. And so this is like a clue as you read the gospel of Luke and Acts to identifying the Messiah before Jesus' ministry starts. John tells us, here's how you can know for sure who is the Messiah. And then in terms of the way Luke makes his argument, Luke's going to come back later to this statement in verses 16 and 17 and say, you remember how John says this about how we know who the Messiah is? Look at Jesus. You can be sure he's a Messiah because that's what he did. He did this. And so now we're ready, I hope, for what John says. We're anticipating verses 16 and 17. These verses are a big deal. Point number one, listen to John. He's going to give you a clue. Point number two, here's your clue. The one who's supposed to point out the Messiah identifies how we can know for sure who the Messiah is as he answers this question about whether or not he is the Messiah. And if you look at the text, he says three things specifically. First, he says that he he can't be the Messiah. That's not how it works. Second, he talks about two key characteristics of the Messiah, and then third, he tells us how we can know who the Messiah is by describing what the Messiah is going to do. So let's start with, with John saying he can't be the Messiah, verse 16 again. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. So they asked, remember, are you the Christ? And John says, I baptize you with water, which is a no, of course, but it's a kind of a strange way to say no, right? Like you would just think he would say No. But he doesn't. That would have been quicker to just say no. But instead, he says, I baptize you with water. Why does he say it like that? He's not saying it like that because he's minimizing baptizing with water, for sure. Like, how could I be the Messiah? All I do is baptize you with water out here. I mean, that's not important. No, it is important. It is really important because it's part of how John got people ready for the Messiah. You remember how Luke says it was a baptism of repentance? And so it was a very specific kind of baptism, not like us getting baptized even now. It's not even really like a Christian baptism, really. It was different. It had a specific purpose. And that purpose was to enable Israel to say, basically, God, we as a nation are humbling ourselves before you. We don't deserve salvation. We're turning from idolatry and all of that, and we're depending completely on you the way you told us to. So come save us. It was preparatory. John's baptism. That's the point, because it was like a sign for Israel to say to God, we're ready for the king to come, for the Messiah. The Old Testament says we're going to repent before we experience this great salvation you're promising. So we're out here in the wilderness, getting baptized as a way of saying we're doing that. And so obviously John can't be the Messiah, because look at what he did. He baptized with water. That was his ministry. It was a preparatory ministry which meant his ministry wasn't doing the work of the Messiah because he was the one who was supposed to come before the Messiah and get people ready for God to act through the Messiah. And so that's one reason John says, I baptize you with water. But another reason is just for the contrast. I do this, but the Messiah is going to do this. My ministry gives you a picture to help you understand the Messiah's ministry. And I don't know, I just love the way Luke sets us up for this contrast in chapters 1 and 2 because one of the things that Luke is doing in chapters 1 and 2 is contrasting John and Jesus and this contrast is really striking and the reason it's striking is because if you just had what Luke says about John himself by itself it would be huge I mean think about John he his birth was like one of those miraculous Old Testament births like we compared it to the birth of Isaac his, uh, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Who else was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb? His mother prophesized. His father, too, at the end. When he's born, Luke says, fear comes upon all his neighbors. They hear about John being born. They're scared. And everyone starts talking about what happens. And then we've just seen that his ministry is huge. It's so huge, people are wondering if he is the Messiah. It's so big, actually, John's ministry that later on Jesus is going to say, John is literally the most important person in the world up to that point. Can you imagine Jesus saying that about you? He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And John had such a big impact in this world that even after he died and Jesus rose, there still were followers of John the Baptist. Did you know that? There actually still are followers of John the Baptist today. There are groups out there following John the Baptist. And yet John obviously would say, if he were here, that's incredibly foolish because in spite of how important his ministry was, it doesn't compare to the ministry of the Messiah. That's part of why he says, I baptize you with water. I can't be the Messiah. Look at what I do. My ministry is just preparing you for something much bigger, much, much bigger. That's that was first. I'm not the Messiah. Second, the Messiah is going to do something much bigger than what I'm doing, even though what I'm doing is super important. Second, if I'm not the Messiah, how do you know who the Messiah is? And he talks about the difference between himself and the Messiah in their person and their work. To begin, he talks specifically about two key characteristics of the Messiah as a person before he gets to what he does. And it's a little striking the way he does this because you would expect him to say, he will baptize you, right? I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you. But he doesn't say that right away. Instead, he sets it up by telling you two things about the Messiah that are very important. First, he talks about his power. But he who is mightier than I is coming. Of course, mightier has to do with power. The first thing that John points out about the Messiah is his power. The Messiah is powerful. And this is important for us to hear. Uh, I know for me to remember. Why does John talk about the Messiah's power? It's because the work the Messiah has to do, according to the Bible, involves changing things. Ultimately, the Messiah's work is going to include defeating evil. It's going to involve nature being transformed. It is going to involve the curse being reversed. It's going to involve death being defeated. And so that's one reason John couldn't be the Messiah. He didn't have the kind of power the Messiah would. We're looking for a Messiah who has power over things like nature and death, and all the other bad things that come into this world as a result of the curse. That's first. Second, he talks about the significance of the Messiah. He says, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And, of course, we can understand that even now without a lot of work, but there is a little cultural background information that helps make it a bigger statement because the Jews in John's day obviously uh, would have been against being a slave. I mean, we're against being a slave (laughs) Uh, no one wants to be a slave. That's like the worst situation you could see yourself in. We would all think being a slave was very low, and we would never want to be a slave. But say you, say you were a slave. Say that terrible thing happened somehow. There were different kinds of slaves back then. Even slaves had rankings. We rank everything. They had more important slaves, and they had less important slaves. And the least important kind of slave was the kind of slave Who would be responsible for doing things like washing his master's feet in other words if you had to be a slave the one kind of slave you didn't want to be the most was the kind of slave who had to wash his master's feet and you can imagine the master coming in after walking all day on those dirty roads or maybe he's working on the farm it was an agricultural world so he didn't know what he was like stepping in and then he just comes in there sits there snaps his finger and a slave has to run over and untie his sandals and wash his feet. That's the worst. That's the slave you had to do all the other disgusting stuff. And no Jew would ever, 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 ever want to be a slave like that. And John is saying here that even though he's the greatest prophet in the history of the world with the most important ministry in the history of the world, and even though right At that moment, he is literally having a world-changing impact. Israel is being turned upside down because of what John's saying and doing. And even though Jesus says John is the most important person ever, John himself says he is so far inferior to the Messiah that he would not even be worthy of being the Messiah's lowest, most unimportant slave. And so if I'm looking for a Messiah, if you're looking for a Messiah, John tells us some really important things, first of all. Here, first of all, of course it's not going to be John because he's not the Messiah. He's the one who prepares us for the Messiah. Second of all, though, it's got to be someone very unique because it's going to be someone who has actual power to do things that, like, we can't do, power that we've never seen before. It's not just that he's given power, actually. John says he is mightier. He's not just a vehicle for power. We've seen that before, like, power somehow would flow through him like Elijah No, he is powerful, and he is significant. He is someone more important than anyone we've seen before. We're talking about someone who's in his own category. There is the Messiah, and then there is everybody else. He is in a position of supreme importance. And what demonstrates that according to John? And here's where we get to where John talks about what the Messiah will do his work. So first, I'm not the Messiah. Second, we're talking about a person of supreme power and importance, and he has to be, he has to be because of what he'll do. And this is third. This is how you can know the Messiah. This is what he'll do. Here's your clue. If we look down at the end of verse 16, he will baptize you with, or in, literally, the Holy Spirit and fire. And that is going to be the main clue that Luke's going to bring up as his proof that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So you're reading... The Old Testament, you're seeing what happened with Jesus, you're like, ah, does it really connect? John the Baptist is telling you how you can know Jesus fulfills. He, the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, or how you can know who the Messiah is. He will baptize you with the Spirit. It's like, who baptized you with the Spirit? You identify who did that, you know the one who did that, he's the Messiah. And that's how we can know what happened with Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And obviously here John is saying, That's also one of the proofs that he's so much more important than John is and so much more powerful. The fact that he does baptize with the spirit and with fire. I baptize you with water, but he baptizes you with the spirit and with fire. So this is a big, big statement. But what does it mean exactly? (laughs) Because obviously the words themselves are not too difficult. Baptize, spirit, fire. If we get out a dictionary... Baptized, that's what John's doing. It means immerse. John's immersing people in, in water. It's like a Greek transliteration. It's a transliteration of a Greek word. It just means immerse. And so the Messiah is going to immerse people in the Spirit. And, and the Spirit, the Spirit's God. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, three persons, one God, and fire. We know what fire is, which of course is where it starts to get strange again, right? Like if we're paying attention because the Messiah is going to immerse people in in the spirit of God, and in fire. We understand the words, I think, but we need more than a dictionary definition to really understand what that means. How do we do that? And to answer that question, we need to go back to the Old Testament story again. (laughs) Because you remember what Luke's doing is showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so now he's bringing John up, and John's pinpointing, Key Old Testament ideas we're supposed to keep our eyes on, which is what? This baptizing with the Spirit and with fire. And so where does that come from? Fire is probably the easier idea at first because you think fire in the Old Testament, what do you think of? There are two options. One thing you might think of is the presence of God, and that's legitimate because the first time we read of fire is uh, with Abram where God makes a covenant with him. And uh, one of the things that represents God is a smoking fire pot. And then, of course, later there is Moses on the mountain, you remember, where God appears to Moses in a flame of fire from the middle of a bush. And so there is a lot of association in the Old Testament between God and fire, and sometimes it's just his presence generally. But more often, when you read the Old Testament, much more often, you are reading about God's coming to judge when you read about fire. And so since Luke quotes Isaiah so much, Isaiah 66:15 is a classic example because it describes what's going to happen after God rescues Israel. Isaiah says, Isaiah 66, 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. And so after salvation... There's going to be a judgment-like fire coming for the wicked. And if you look at verse 17, back in Luke, John says the Messiah is going to bring it. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And we'll talk more about what that means, but you see the end there. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so I think fire here means this end times judgment. One of the Messiah's roles will be immersing God's enemies in God's wrath. In fact, uh, later on in Luke, Luke 12, you have to see this. Uh, You actually literally do have to see this. Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 49. Jesus himself says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. And he's almost just basically quoting John there. But what about the spirit? How does he fit in? And this part's going to be a little longer because you have to go back almost to the beginning of the story. Because God's plan is not just judgment. It could have been, but it's not. The way God designed the world was for it to be like this place where his people experience his presence and enjoy his blessing. But what happens almost right after God creates the world is that man sins and we all become what? God's enemies. We're, we're kicked out of God's presence. And so we're all at war with God now, which, of course, is a problem. Because if the Messiah is going to come and reverse the curse and destroy all the evil in the world, we are that evil. <laughs> we are part of what should be destroyed. If the Messiah is going to come and punish God's enemies, we're all God's enemies. So we all should be baptized in fire. So how does the salvation part work? You know? And we open up the Old Testament, and the Old Testament tells us God has a plan. He's going to rescue a people for himself. And we see how that plan starts with Israel. And we read the story, and God rescues Israel, and He places them in the promised land, and He gives them all these promises of what would happen if they obey. And yet, as we keep reading the story, what happens? They don't obey. In fact, they're pretty much committed to doing the exact opposite of what God wanted. And so they get kicked out of the promised land, which is this huge problem in the Bible. That's the exile that I'm talking about. It's like Israel ended up in the same place Adam did. You get that, right? Like Adam is kicked out. That's exile. Israel is put in there, and we're thinking they're going to be the ones who solve the problems of the world, but then they get kicked out, and they're in the same place Adam was at the end of the Old Testament, like looking back in, in exile, And that's the problem, that is the context for Luke 3. And we're wondering, how is God going to fix this? Because the Old Testament says he's going to fix this. It's not going to go on forever and forever the way it was. And so, first of all, God promises he's going to send a king who will do what that nation could not do. There's going to be a descendant of David who's going to obey him perfectly and enable his people to experience the promised land. But, you know, of course, the problem is, while it's going to be great to have a king who obeys God, what about the people? I mean, who's he going to rule over if God's people are so bad? And so we keep reading the Old Testament, and we find that God makes another promise, a big one we call the New Covenant, which we read about in places like Jeremiah 31, where it says, "'Behold, the days are coming,' declares the Lord." when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the lord for i will forgive their iniquities and i will remember their sins no more and so god's saying he's going to deal with the problem of israel's brokenness by providing a way for their sin to be forgiven and by giving them a new heart that wanted to obey and is able to obey and the reason he did that was so that they could enter into a new restored relationship with him so they could not just be his people in name but really his people and how is he going to do that exactly Uh, you know, if you, if you come to church wanting me just to tell you how, like, great you're supposed to be, this is going to be a really boring church, but, like, if, if you're coming to know how the Bible works and, like, God's plan for actually solving the problems of the universe, this should be interesting because it's there. And one place it's there is in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 and 27, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And of course, that was the part we were working toward the whole time because you saw that, right? He says, I will put my spirit within you. And so, if we're reading the Old Testament, what are we longing for? We're longing for this day when God steps in and when the promised king comes to establish God's kingdom and we're longing for that day. We know that day is arriving when God's spirit comes and enables his people to be the kind of people he meant them to be. And one way, the Old Testament says, we'll know that day has arrived is when there is this special outpouring of the spirit. Listen to Isaiah 32, verse 15. For the place is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. That's just a poetic way of describing exile until verse 15, the spirit is poured upon us from on high. And what happens? The wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a harvest. The cosmos is changed. Creation is changed. Everything that used to be a wilderness is turned upside down. It's a complete reversal of the curse. And, and how do you know that's happening? The Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and pouring out is what kind of language? It's liquid language. It's not exactly baptism, but it's watery. It's watery. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 44 verse 3 makes the same promise. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants, which is what John's talking about. He's just using the word baptism because that's what he's doing. It's like a a fitting picture for this outpouring we're talking about. And the incredible connection John is making here, the reason Luke brings him up, is because he's saying, the way you will know who is the promised king is because he will be the one who initiates this new era in salvation history by baptizing you in the Holy Spirit. And I hope I haven't lost you with all those words or or made that too unclear. But basically, to make it really simple, the Old Testament promises this future day when God is going to act in the world in a great saving way. And one sign we're in that day is that the people of God will have the Spirit of God they will be baptized in the Spirit. And the point is that it's going to be the Messiah who makes that happen. You are going to know who the Messiah is by looking for the one who baptizes people in the Spirit of God. And if you know that, you understand that, you're kind of ready for the argument of Luke and Acts, because how does Luke end? If you go all the way to the Luke chapter 24, almost the very last verses, what does Jesus say? Luke 24, 48 and 49, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Power is kind of an important word there too, if you think Jesus is mightier, spirit, all these things, and and the promise of the father is the spirit, and then Acts, what happens in Acts? Listen to Acts 1, 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you know what they asked him then? They asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And why did they ask that? Because Jesus is pouring out the Spirit was the proof he was the Messiah and that this new salvation era that was talked about in the Old Testament was starting. And they thought that meant, okay, if you're pouring out the Spirit now, now we're going to see the king establish his kingdom. And Jesus has to explain, no, God is working this plan a little differently than you expected, but the point is, he's working the plan. And Jesus baptizing the apostles with the Spirit is proof of that. And you know what that means if we come all the way back to Luke chapter 3 and just make it practical here at the end, at the end, practical, two important words you probably were waiting for here to hear. It means your response, your relationship with Jesus is very, very important. That's why we're always preaching about it. It's important because he is the one the Old Testament promised was going to come to provide salvation for his people. And he is the one, the Old Testament promised, who is going to come and judge his enemies. Jesus is a dividing line, which is what Simeon prophesied in chapter 2. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. It's what Jesus is going to say about himself in Luke 12. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth, Jesus said? No. I tell you, but rather division, which is kind of ironic given the fact that the angel in Luke chapter 2 says, announces peace on earth. And what Jesus means is not that he is not going to bring peace on earth, because that's literally what the angel promised about him on the day he was born, but what he means is that before he brings peace on earth, he's bringing division. He is going to separate those who belong to God from those who don't. And so this sermon is an invitation in a sense. Because listen, if you want to understand what Christianity is about and this book is about, it's not us up here just saying repent, 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 be good, be good. That's not Christianity. We're not saying just be a Christian, be religious. We're saying God has acted in this world. Something has happened. And what has happened is that he's provided a savior for the world. And Jesus is that savior. And one way we know it is because he's poured out his spirit on his people. And so you need to respond to that. You need to respond how? You need to repent of your sins and you need to turn to him before it's too late. Because here's the warning. This sermon is an invitation and it's a warning. Just like John was giving the people of Israel. Because God is not only sending Jesus to baptize with the spirit he will send Jesus to baptize with fire. And John says in Luke chapter 3, verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, which is a picture that probably works uh, more helpfully at first, at least for people who live in, in farming contexts, But We can understand the picture. When Jewish farmers would gather grain, they would take a shovel. They would shovel it under the grain. It would throw the grain into the air, and the wind or the fan would would send the junk, the chaff, one direction because it was light and empty, and the grain that was heavier would fall straight down. And so they would be able to separate what they would use from what they wouldn't. And, of course, the point that John's making is that's what Jesus came to do, He came to separate the wheat from the chaff, to get the world ready for the kingdom of God, by preparing a people for himself and by separating those people from those who will be judged. Which means, listen, there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Either you're 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 for him or you're against him. You absolutely have to respond. And either you respond by turning from your sin to Jesus and experiencing the supernatural enabling power of the Holy Spirit and enjoying this new restored relationship with God, or you don't. You harden your heart. You continue on in your sin because you love that sin. Not because God hasn't proven that Jesus is the Messiah, but because you love that sin, be honest. And you experience a baptism of fire. And I don't want you to experience that. You you don't have to experience that. You are a sinner. Jesus is the only Savior. Stop fighting against him and submit before it's too late because he is the Messiah, the Old Testament promised. He has provided the salvation, the Old Testament promised. And he's coming again to judge his enemies and to establish God's kingdom forever. Let's pray. Father, your word it's more interesting uh, than us. And uh, a lot of times we are actually more interested in silly trivial things and the problem's not with your word, the problem's that we tend to be silly and trivial. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit, we know, even without your spirit now, this is just almost like dead words to us. And so we ask that your spirit would be at work in us to help us to see Jesus through this great message that Luke proclaims. And thank you that you told us what's going to happen, and then you show us how it happened, and we know the story's not over yet. Uh, You are returning, Jesus, to finish what you started. And I pray that everyone here in this place will be ready for that day when it comes. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name, amen.